Hello everyone and welcome to episode 45 of the Cognicast. This is a very, very exciting uh, time for us right now here at, at Cognitech um, for a couple reasons. First of all, I'm recording this on the eve of the conj, the closure conj, coming up in a very short while. Um, if you are there, please do come and talk to any of us. We're going to have about uh, a really substantial portion of the company will be there and we would love to speak with you. So if you see any... Uh, any Cognitex hanging out at the conj, and especially including myself, um, do come up, strike up a conversation. We're always happy to speak with you. Um, in addition to that, we've got some great news on the Datomic front. Uh, the Datomic team has recently pushed out two pretty significant um, uh, additions to the Datomic suite. Uh, one is Datomic Console, which is a GUI app for exploring Datomic databases. Super useful for understanding your schema, looking at your data, and maybe even for um, helping you to explain Datomic concepts to your coworkers, to your boss, or whomever. So have a look at that. Um, even more exciting for us is the fact that we have just launched Datomic Pro Starter Edition which is a version of Datomic that is no cost, does not cost you any money, uh, but includes support for all the storages. So you can run it against DDB, for example. That's a new thing for us, and we're very, very excited about that. Uh, we think it's going to be very helpful for people to have that available. So uh, you can check all of that out on the Datomic website. Uh, Blog.datomic.com is a good place to start. So yeah, I think that's I mean, that's just a, a lot of really cool news. We're, we're super psyched. Um, but uh, I don't have anything else to tell you about right now, so we will go ahead and go on to the episode. Thanks for listening. So, okay, today is Friday, September 27th in 2013, and this is the Cognicast. Welcome, everyone, but most especially welcome to our guest today. I am very pleased to welcome to the show, Reed Draper. Welcome. Thanks, Craig. Um, yeah, it's great to have you on. And uh, I got the, the, well, let's see. Well, let's get to the, the reason we're having you on the show in a minute. Let's, let's jump right to, and I know you said you listened to at least one show, so I'm not going to surprise you with this question as I have some guests Let's jump right to uh, the music. What did we? What were we hearing on the way in, uh, on the show? Um, so let's do a uh, reorchestration, or actually uh, a recomposition of uh, Vivaldi's Four Seasons by Max Richter. Okay, and is that still uh, like a like a traditional orchestral, or is it a d alternate instrumentation, or? Uh, it is a traditional orchestral uh, arrangement, but it's. Uh, it's a cool riff uh, on the Four Seasons, so it's uh, it's a classical piece that most people have heard, but uh, cast in a different light, I suppose. Neat, that's awesome. Are you uh, are you uh, any kind of a musician? Do you do you play something or otherwise musically inclined? Uh, I'm very out of practice, but yes, <laughs> yeah, um, I played an orchestra uh, through college, uh, playing upright bass, but it's uh, I've sort of fallen out of practice wow, as you of late. <laughs> you, you played the upright. I mean, I I gotta say, I you know, we met very very briefly at Strange Loop. I guess that was the week before last, and uh, yep. You you didn't look like you had the. I didn't notice that you have like alien strength hands, which I understand is is helpful when playing the upright. Yeah, I probably did four years ago, but uh, I think that's probably all withered away. <laughs> <laughs> well, very cool. Uh, so the reason I wanted to have you on the show is absolutely related to Strange Loop. Um, when I was there, um, I uh, attended a recording of the Think Distributed podcast, which was super cool. I actually had had it on my list um, 
to listen to, and after attending the the recording, I need to move it up and and jump into it right away. And you were one of the the uh, panel, I guess you said you guys would say for the for the yep. recording. Um, and so I ran into you there, and that was cool. And you had a lot of smart things to say, and um, uh, there were a couple of other Basho guys, and you you work at Basho. I do, uh, yep. And they were all very impressive, and so I'm like, oh, that's cool. You know, these guys are great. And and then additionally, and and maybe a little bit more, what I think we might start with at least, um, you did another on session where you talked about a library that you've written called SimpleCheck. Yep. Yeah. So uh, uh, Sean Cribs, my coworker, and I did a uh, a quick check on session at Strange Loop. Um, oh, okay. So, yeah, so uh, Quick Check is uh, a property-based testing tool that uh, came into the Haskell world in 2001 or 2002, but has since seen implementations in a bunch of different languages. Um, so the unsession we did was sort of language agnostic, sort of just you know trying to introduce people to another way of thinking about tests, um, but. All of those same lessons are applicable to SimpleCheck, which is my uh, closure implementation of QuickCheck. Right, and I should apologize to you right up front, which I did not attend that session, uh, but I wanted to have you on because a number of my colleagues at Cognitech did, and they said uh, it was a really cool session, and I said, well, do you think it would make sense to talk to Reed about that on the show? And they it was an immediate yes, so... Uh, <laughs> So I appreciate well, yeah. you coming on, but I have to apologize. I'm, I'm probably going to ask a fair number of pretty stupid questions, but uh, uh, people that have listened to the show are used to that. So, um, so, so, I, I, I mean, I've, I've been sort of vaguely aware of uh, Quick Check and the, the family of, uh, you know, as you say, implementations, um, of which your particular implementation has gotten some praise um, as being a, a, a particularly good. Uh, realization of the idea but i wonder if you could drill down for us and, and, and give us the overview of like what like what's the idea here i mean i think i know generally sure. this is a testing thing but what's the what's the concept yeah so it's um sort of a different way of thinking about writing tests than traditional unit testing um so with most unit testing you're coming up with individual examples to test a function and um you know, you have some input that you've, you know, coded by hand, you call your function, and then you have some expected output that you've also coded by hand that, you know, you assert that uh, the function under test returns the output that you expect. Um, and if you're, you know, lucky or a disciplined programmer, you actually get the result um, either by your own intuition or maybe by... Uh, by calling some other function that's not the one you're testing. But if you're like a lot of programmers, what you actually end up doing is calling your own function to get the output. Um, just, you know, kind of a lazy thing to do, but mm -hmm. not, you know, not uncommon. So, uh, you know, you're actually just testing that your function returns the value that you just typed in the REPL. Um, which, you know, sometimes is okay. You can kind of look at it and see, all right, if I type in uh, you know, reverse one, two, three, four, five, I see it's five, four, three, two, one, and I can, you know, sort of spot check it. Um, but for the most part in practice, people don't tend to write a lot of examples for their unit tests. Um, and if they do, they're either prone to error or, uh, you know, taking a long time. So quick check sort of takes the idea that we shouldn't have to write these examples by hand, or at least in the common case, we shouldn't have to do that. Um, we should be able to make some generalization about properties that should hold true about our function, um, generate some random input, and then uh, call our function with the random input, and then assert that uh, our function under test matches the property or the specification that, uh, that we've sort of encoded. So the sort of canonical example for this is that, uh, let's say you're testing... Uh, the reverse function, which is going to reverse an array or a list or something. Um, a property that you might come up with is that the reverse of the reverse of the list is equivalent to the input list. Um, and you sort of describe that to quick check um, as a universal quantification. So you'll say for all lists A, the reverse of the reverse of A is equal to A. Um, depending on the quick check framework you're using, um, 
uh, and uh, depending on the type system of the language, you'll either have to tell QuickCheck, okay, here's how you generate uh, input from my function, or if you're in a statically typed language, QuickCheck can actually look at the type signature uh, for your specification and say, oh, okay, it you know expects a list of integers, so I know how to generate that. Um, so we will run some uh, number that you specify of uh, random lists through the test and assert that, you know, indeed the reverse of the reverse of the list is equivalent to the original input. Um, so that's sort of the, uh, the view from 30,000 feet of, of what QuickCheck is. Mm -hmm. um, it takes that a bit further and when the test fails, it'll actually try and find a smaller failing example where smaller is a data type specific thing. Um, and basically just means a value that's going to be easier for the programmer to see why the test might have failed. Um, so let's say that you have, uh, just for the sake of argument, a function that only fails when it's passed a list that has the number 99 in it. And it might turn out that uh, since we're doing random testing, the first example that, uh, that we randomly generate that has the number 99 in it is a thousand element vector. Um, and if I were to just print that out for you, you know, you might look at that and as a programmer, it's not obvious why the test failed. You know, that 99 is buried in there somewhere. Um, but you're looking at all this other, you know, junk in the vector that's not actually causing the test to fail. Um, so QuickCheck has a notion called shrinking, which will actually basically uh, uh, do a search to try and find out the... Uh, a smaller input to your function that will still cause the test to fail. Um, so obviously in that case, ideally it'll return just a vector that just has the singleton element 99 in it. Um, it's sort of like, uh, you know, doing get bisect mm -hmm. uh, for your random failing example. Um, and the idea there being, you know, if there's something that we can make the computer do work for us, you know, it's, it's better to try and, you know, write that up once as opposed to, us having to, you know, do a search by hand, you know, removing elements from the vector and stuff. Um, so that's the other uh, really powerful part about QuickCheck um, is it quickly allows you to uh, to find out exactly why your property is failing as opposed to just getting some large random input. Hmm. Um, that sounds like magic. <laughs> I mean, because what I hear you say, I mean, when I, I mean, I'm totally naive about this. Like, I haven't used it, but I, I think about that. I go, well, that's search over a potentially, uh, you know, infinite space with lots and lots of dimensions, and yet it sounds like what you're saying is your experience is that, uh, putting words in your mouth here, but that you that it will often, you know, be able to find a useful answer for you without without taking too much time. Yeah. So. Um... It obviously isn't magic, right? So it, um, and as you correctly point out, the shrink space can be uh, very large. So just shrinking like the vector 505 um, can shrink into uh, thousands of different possibilities. Mm. Um, so quick check does not actually find the smallest failing case. It'll find a local minima. Um, so you can sort of imagine uh, the shrink space as a tree. Um, and it does a depth first, uh, traversal of the tree, but doesn't have any backtracking in it. Um, so there's a couple little tricks it can play to not, uh, stop the traversal too early. Um, but it's not going to search the whole tree. Mm. Um, but in practice, it ends up finding significantly smaller, uh, failing examples if it's possible to do so. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's, you know. Uh, it might be the case that the original generated uh, failing example is pretty close to the smallest input. Um, you know, so it might not be able to do very much with that. Um, and there's all sorts of ways that, you know, if you're sort of a more advanced user, you can kind of play with how shrinking works uh, for your uh, data type and stuff. Um, but in practice, it, it does tend to sort of, you know, seem like magic. Um, right. And yeah, it's... Uh, it's definitely a uh, an indispensable uh, feature of quick checks, I think. Hmm. So, I, I, I this I, I, it's funny. I mean, several times now I've had people on the show and they talk about some really cool technology that I haven't used. And I was saying to 
someone just this morning we were recording that uh, <laughs> I, what I need is a project that I can use everything on. Like this project where where I can go and and just say, okay, I'm going to use court. I was actually talking to Ambrose, uh, Bonero Sergeant, about uh, Corda typed, and I'd like to use that, and I'd like to use this, and I'd like to use Corey Sync because um, it feels like one of those things where actually you describe it seems pretty clear, but um, it would be nice to sort of see it. And the thing that occurs to me, where you know naively it feels like it might, the hard part might be in. Uh, I don't know, Figuring out how to state those invariants, right? Like for reverse, it, you know, you, the, the way you say it, that's fairly obvious. But I don't know if, in the general case, I would be able personally to do any better than kind of the unit test case, where I'm like, well, specifically, when I give it this specific input, I get this specific output. In in practice, like, what are the? It, does that tend to be easier than I'm imagining it, or are there guidelines or like examples or like how do you do that yeah. part of it? Right. So I mean, I. I think you've definitely pointed out what the most difficult part about quick check is. Um, and the good news is that practice and looking at how other people write tests goes a long way. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're, uh, you're absolutely right. It can be kind of daunting at first to think about, okay, what properties hold true about my function that are actually going to, you know, help me find bugs. Um, so there are some guidelines. Um, it is a little bit, if a, uh, you know, experience goes a long way in this, um, I've been using uh, QuickCheck and Haskell and Erlang for a few years now. Um, and I feel like now most things I look at, I can, you know, rattle off a couple of properties. Mm -hmm. um, but it took a while to get there. So, I mean, it absolutely does take some time. Um, I sort of liken it to, uh, so I remember uh, when I first started uh, my career as a professional programmer, um, I was sort of just getting into unit testing and I would have a function that I wanted to write a unit test for and it was doing all these, you know, stateful things, had all these side effects. And my first thought was, well, this function's not really amenable to unit testing. You know, uh, unit testing is not really right. Like I just can't really see how I can, you know, write a, a repeatable test for that. Um, you know, I later learned that my function was just a poor function, right? It was it was hard to test, not because my domain is inherently difficult to test, but because my code was kind of crap. And you know, I later learned how to write code that was more testable, not necessarily for the sake of making it more testable. Um, you know, I also gained uh, some other you know good things that we look for in solid code. Um, but as a side effect of that, my code became easier to test as well. Um, so I think the same analogy uh, kind of holds with quick check as well. If at first it seems like, all right, you know, maybe this isn't really amenable uh, to quick check, it's probably a, co uh, a combination of, you know, a little bit of inexperience being able to kind of, you know, quickly think about properties. Um, but some of the, th the same things will hold true as with unit testing that sometimes you have to think about how to express your code differently to make it easier to quick check, the quick check, um, and in, in in a lot of cases, I think that leads to better code in general. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, that is absolutely one of the uh, the biggest barriers to entry uh, with quick check. Um, I have some, you know, uh, pointers that I you know try and tell people or think about myself. Um, things like uh, if you're uh, code has uh, some round trip property. So for example, if you're testing a, uh, a compressor and a decompressor or a reader and a writer, um, these are two things that when composed uh, together should be equivalent to the identity. Mm -hmm. um, so that makes for a really powerful test and is cool too because that test is like one line long, right? You know, equals original input, encode, decode. Right. Um, you know, and you run that with 50,000 examples and you have a significantly better test than you could possibly have written by hand. Um, so that's a simple example, you know, obviously not everything fits into, uh, into that pattern. Um, but you start to learn little tricks like that, uh, you know, uh, models or patterns that you've seen before in quick check tests, um, other things that can hold true. So like, 
in the reverse example, we checked that reversing it twice. There's all sorts of other things that you can uh, test as well. So uh, if I reverse a sorted list it sh uh, that was in ascending order, it should now be in a de a de descending order. Uh, sorting uh, and reversing should retain count. Removing an element should decrement the count by one. Um, and you know, you might point out that these are all kind of pure data structure-y kind of properties. And you know, maybe you think, well, my code doesn't all, you know, doesn't always fit into that model. Um, but maybe you should make it fit into that model more. You know, in the closure community uh, and functional programming in general, we talk a lot about how we should make as much of our code just be transformations on values. Um, so if you structure your code that way, I think it becomes easier to think about these properties. Hmm. I'm totally nodding along. I mean, it's a podcast and I always wind up doing that, but that makes perfect sense. <laughs> I actually, the, the, I really like the one you said about um, round tripping because that immediately, so I have this uh, little library that I threw together that does, um, generates random data off of uh, uh, these descriptions of Markov chains called Causatom, but, but like immediately I, that made, I made sense to me how I test it. In fact, I have like this, you know, probably completely broken compared to what something like um, QuickCheck would give me unit test. That's like, well, let's generate a random sequence and then see if some set of statistical properties holds. But obviously, something like uh, QuickCheck, I might be able to do way more interesting things, like not only test that a particular model generates a sequence of events that has a particular set of statistical properties, but possibly even generate a bunch of models and see if they all conform to that constraint. That's super cool. Yeah. I like that. Hmm. So, um, so you mentioned that, so that quick check comes out of the Haskell community, um, and that you've been doing quick check type testing in, I, I think you said in both Haskell and Erlang, mm -hmm. uh, yep. Erlang, Erlang, how do people say it? Uh, I say Erlang. Okay. Um, yeah, it came out of, uh, uh, out of Ericsson, which is in Sweden. Um, so I'm sure they uh, pronounce it a bit differently. <laughs> right. <laughs> I won't even try. Um, although I did grow up in Minnesota, so maybe that would help me, but I still won't try. <laughs> um, yeah, so, but, but you wrote Simple Check, which is in Clojure. So, and, you know, I mean, here we are on the Cognicast, and we like to talk about Clojure a lot. So uh, I wonder if you could describe maybe, like, why, why you wanted to write it in Clojure. Or are, are you using that, or was it just something you did for fun? Or, like, what's the deal with that? Yeah, so um, uh, so in my day job, um, I work for a company called Basho, where we write uh, two distributed databases, which are uh, both written in Erlang. Um, there is a uh, commercial version of QuickCheck written for Erlang that's written by one of the original authors of QuickCheck for Haskell. Um, the Erlang one has... Uh, long since surpassed the Haskell one sort of in terms of uh, features and stuff. There's, um, I guess, a little bit more of a commercial market for it. Um, so we use that one at work and, you know, I've been uh, using it close to daily for a couple of years now. And um, it's very much, you know, changed the way I think about testing. Um, I think it's a very, you know, powerful tool and I'm sort of, you know, sold on it, so to speak. Um, and I played with the Haskell one, uh, quite a bit as well. So when I got into closure, um, maybe a year and a half or two years ago, um, I was writing a library called Knockbox, which is a, uh, CRDT library, uh, CRDTs real quick are basically, uh, data structures that can be, uh, manipulated concurrently and then merge back together, um, without losing any information. So you'll use them for, uh, situations where you want to have concurrent updates that are not uh, coordinated. So, you know, say you want to update your playlist for uh, some music application on your phone while you're in the subway. And then, you know, you're collaborating it with a buddy who's, uh, who's working on it on the internet. Um, you're not actually coordinating those updates, uh, sort of like how Google Docs works. Mm -hmm. um, so in any event, uh, I'm writing this enclosure and uh, I'm sort of rattling off, you know, all these properties that I'm thinking about as I write it. And uh, I go looking for, you know, the quick check for closure because that's what I, you know, the tool I kind of want to reach for there um, and wasn't really satisfied with 
the ecosystem around that. Uh, there were a couple of you know half baked implementations and some ones that looked promising, but the author you know uh, life intervened or whatever. Um, so I sort of you know let that stew for a while, and uh, as I was playing with Closer more, you know, sort of just decided, I guess I just need to go write this. Um, so it was mostly out of you know every time I played with Closure, I was really missing this library and decided uh, if I didn't write it, you know, uh, maybe no one would. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I've been uh, I've been working on it for a few months now. It sort of sat in. Uh, in hammock time period for a while as I sort of figured out how to write it, uh, based on the Haskell implementation. Mm -hmm. Um, so the Erlang one is not open source. Um, so I don't really have the luxury of, you know, being able to dig into the internals of that. Um, so I spent a lot of time looking at the Haskell one while trying to kind of make the API, more similar to the Erlang one, uh, since Clojure and Erlang are both uh, dynamically typed languages. Um, but yeah, so uh, you know, the motivation was just I wanted to use it in Clojure stuff, um, so decided to go write it. Okay, well that's a that's a great reason. In fact, you could argue that's the best reason to to write a library is that you need it for yourself. Yep. Um, I I mean I don't know. So let, let's let's jump aside for a moment because, um, like I said, when I was at the the Strange Loop. Um, I was really quite impressed by you and your colleagues at Basho, and you mentioned that you guys uh, make a couple databases, and um, I w- wouldn't mind hearing a little bit more. I know one of them, but I, I really, I mean, I guess one of the reasons that I was uh, uh, interested in talking to you is because I didn't really know much about Basho before, and I, then I saw a collection of what are clearly very smart people. So, uh, like, what are your, I, I mean, one of your products is React, right? Yep. Yeah. And yeah, so- uh, Go ahead. Uh, uh, yes, we make, uh, two different databases. Um, they have a lot in common, uh, but they're two different products. Uh, so React and React CS, uh, mm-hmm. React CS is our, uh, cloud storage product, which is basically, uh, S3, but, uh, uh, but in your own data center, um, which is the, the product that I primarily work on. Um, they're both databases that are distributed from the beginning in their design. Um, so they're not really applicable if you're looking to, uh, to run it on, you know, one or two machines. They're really meant for, uh, five or more machines. Um, but the, the design sort of has a distribution baked in from the beginning. It's not an afterthought or something bolted on. Um, React was originally based on the Dynamo paper, which came out of Amazon, I think in 2005 or 2006, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but has since sort of morphed into its own thing. Um, so at its core, it is a distributed key value store. Um, sort of the main tenants uh, of it are uh, operational ease. So you should be able to uh, to lose a node in the middle of the night not and you know not have to worry about getting paged for it. Um, so fault tolerance, availability are sort of our core engineering concerns. Um, sort of under the premise that you know, you're going to develop your application on this database, but um, perhaps the most important thing is that you actually have to operate this database. You know, conceivably, uh, if your product is successful, you're going to actually have to run this thing for several years. So the day-to-day operational ease um, and fault tolerance of the database are uh, are things that are really important to a lot of people. So those... Uh, sort of serve as the philosophy for a lot of the uh, of the work we do. Um, yeah. So yeah, it, it's uh, you know I suppose technically a uh, a NoSQL database, um, but I think people are starting to see now that each NoSQL database has its uh, its own pros and cons, and they're not really necessarily directly comparable to each other. Right. So yeah, yeah. I mean, well, you know, obviously we also make a database, and in fact. Our database is a uh, consumer of your database. We can run Datomic on top of React, so that's uh, another good reason for us to talk. So, um, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, no, yeah, I, I think that's a uh, a really cool use of uh, uh, of React. Um, I remember when Rich first talked about Datomic. I think at the first Closure West, maybe was it was right around there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, 
um, I went and found him then and, you know, was all excited to try and see if, uh, you know, um, if you guys could use React as the backend and uh, it's worked out. So, yeah, I know there's a few people who are using it. Um, I think that's a really cool fit. So. Yeah. I've been uh, I've been super excited to see where that's been going. Uh, it's a super actually it's a really important option for us because um, although um, you know like when I implement uh, Datomic uh, for my customer room key which we've talked about on the podcast you know we use DynamoDB um, that's not an option for a lot of people who uh, for whatever reason can't run on AWS and so having a something like uh, well, having React in particular where they can set it up in their own data center means that they they get to have nice things too. I mean, React itself is a nice thing, but then they get to have the nice things that we sell them as well. So that's it's been very, very important for us to have to have React as a, a backend for Datomic. So it's cool. Yeah. Um, uh, so React CS actually treats React in a lot of the same ways that uh, Datomic does. Hmm. Um, so React CS, um, uh, one of the sort of technical differentiators uh, from React. Uh, is that React.cs can store large files. You can store files up to five terabytes. Um, whereas React sort of just being a, uh, uh, you know, key value blob store, uh, you're really not storing things above a handful of megabytes. Um, sure. Uh, so React.cs uh, chunks those, uh, uh, those objects up into, um, into a immutable blobs, um, which is really similar to uh, how Datomic uses React um, mm -hmm. in the sense that all the data that's stored there is immutable. Um, and you get some really, really nice properties from a eventually consistent database when you store immutable things. You actually don't have to worry about the eventual and eventual consistency in the same way. If you store immutable data and you retrieve it, the value is either correct or it's not found. Right, right. Um, which is a really, really nice thing uh, to sort of have as a, uh, a storage primitive. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, I'm a big fan of uh, sort of the design philosophy of how Datomic uses React. And I'm excited to see people start to use immutability more in large-scale system design and not just in their functional programs. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Rich has said... Um it's very interesting to start with immutability and just drive it as far down into the design as you can and see where that leads you. And it seems like you guys have had a parallel, uh, you, you know, thought, right? Cause it's, it's in your, your product deep down as well. Yep. Yeah. Cool. So what do you do for Basho? I mean, what's your, what's your role in developing, um, I don't know what part of the products do you, uh, suite do you work on? Yeah, um, so I work day to day on React CS. Um, you know, so most of the day I'm staring at a terminal, uh, writing or debugging uh, code in Erlang. Um, so either working on uh, new features to increase our uh, uh, our API parity with S3, um, or with the OpenStack Object Store API, or working on underlying performance things. Um, you know, figuring out how we can make uh, React CS uh, a faster and more uh, reliable product. Um, uh, one of the cool things, actually, uh, and I don't think I mentioned this before, uh, both React and React CS are open source. Um, so they're uh, both Apache 2 licensed. Hmm. There is a, uh, an enterprise version of each, which adds, you know, 24-7 support and multi-data center replication. Um, but the Apache 2 versions are you know, not crippleware at all. The multi-data center stuff is strictly an add-on. Um, so a lot of our users, you know, are just using the open source one. Um, and, you know, it's really uh, rewarding for me to have, you know, the stuff I do on a daily basis is just on GitHub. I can interact with the community and stuff a lot. Um, so I found that to be a, uh, a really awesome part of the job. That No, that's super cool. I, I mean, uh, yeah, that's great. Actually, I, had, I did not know that if, if somebody had asked me. I wouldn't have guessed that, so it's actually cool to hear. Um, so you say that uh, you're working most days in Erlang, and we could talk. I kind of want to ask you about that, but I, I think I also want to ask you, you know, if if your day job is Erlang, what, I mean, you were doing something in Clojure. Uh, mm -hmm. Was that for fun, or like what, what was, I, I don't know, maybe you can't talk about it, I know we can't always, but what were you working on in Clojure that led you to write SimpleCheck? Uh, yeah, no, I can absolutely talk about it. Um, I'm 
a uh, a burgeoning lang- uh, language geek, I suppose. <laughs> um, so uh, once I sort of got into functional programming uh, via Haskell, I sort of you know realized it was fun to learn new languages and you know see what I liked about you know each of them. And uh, over the past couple of years, I've sort of settled on mostly playing with uh, Haskell, Erlang, uh, and Clojure. Um, Haskell and Clojure, sort of just for fun, side project kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, uh, you know, most of my experience with Clojure has been just fun side project things, experimenting uh, with new data structures and stuff like that. Right. You mentioned Knockbox. Now I remember what you said. That was that was the thing you were working on. That the the CRDT implementation. I've actually got the CRDT paper sitting on my desk in front of me. It's super interesting stuff. And yeah. Uh, so Knockbox. It, it, are you still like where is Knockbox at? Are you still working on it? Is it is it something that people can use or? Uh, it's totally usable. It's it's sort of in uh, waiting for traction mode, I suppose. Mm. <laughs> um, so I think it you know it turns out that <clears throat> CRDTs are they take a certain level of you know sort of understanding of CRDTs to use a library that uh, uh, that implements them. Um, so despite the fact that they've done a lot of work for you, you still have to sort of already be a person who's decided that, okay, CRDTs are solving this problem for me, and I have a pretty good understanding of, you know, what the trade-offs I get for using CRDTs are. Um, and I think it's, it's sort of still a, uh, an upcoming distributed systems tool. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of to say... Uh, I don't think anyone's, you know, really using it in production or anything like that, uh, using Knockbox. Um, uh, in React, we're actually shipping CRDTs now in the database. Um, so this might be a little hard to, uh, to follow if you don't kind of already understand uh, what CRDTs are. But um, the basic idea is that uh, tools like Knockbox and there's some other client-side libraries implement these... Uh, conflict-free data types uh, on the client side. Um, And there's some disadvantages to that. Uh, Things like garbage collection is a bit more difficult. Um, You you as a user sort of have to understand how they work and stuff. Um, So in React, which is our distributed database, uh, instead of having people use CRDTs on the client side, we're actually pushing a lot of that stuff into the server side. Um, So you can have these more advanced data types that you interact with directly in React. It's still an eventually consistent database, but when you have concurrent writes, uh, you can always be assured that they are commutative and associative, and you don't really have to think about what the underlying implementation is. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Yep, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, uh, um, we've been talking about CRDTs. We'll put a link to the paper in the show notes. That's commutative replicated data types, if I remember the acronym correctly. Uh, Yep. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think they've they've sort of uh, waffled on the acronym. It was maybe originally conflict-free right. and then commutative. Okay. Um, I'm not sure which one is uh, is the current acronym, but yeah, that's the basic idea. Yeah. So there was this was an interesting theme actually at Strange Loop this year. It was a minor theme. I mean, I think the over if you had to pick a theme, it's always hard at a multi-track conference. But you know, clearly one of the things that emerged was. Um, uh, you know, equity issues in technology, including and especially gender equity. But I think there was another theme there as well, which was um, an increased awareness and focus on um, distributed systems concepts. I mean, for example, uh, there was a ra- uh, talk about Raft, mm-hmm. uh, the, the uh, distributed consensus protocol that um, is billed as what they, they say it's the understandable distributed consensus protocol or something like that, as opposed to, was it Paxos? Yep. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, if I can sort of, yeah, I please. Uh, in my mind, in that case, understandable just means more understandable than Paxos. Right. Still, still not simple or easy, probably. Um, but I think it's really cool to see that that is a engineering driving goal. I mean, if you look at the literature for Paxos, um, Paxos papers often reference how difficult Paxos is to get right. And just regular Paxos isn't good enough for production systems. Um, you need either fast Paxos or multi-Paxos, 
which makes uh, Paxos even more complicated. So one of the cool things that Raft does is incorporate some of those real production system kind of needs into the consensus algorithm from the beginning. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely uh, wouldn't claim that Raft is, uh, is easy to implement. Mm. Um, but I'm super excited to see you know, people moving in that direction, especially from an academic point of view, because I think uh, consensus is a, a really powerful thing to be able to build on. So, Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to, like I said, listening to more of the Think Distributed pro- podcast, reading the rest of the CRDT uh, paper, and hopefully um, understanding at least 10% of it, uh, <laughs> and uh, reading the RAF paper and, and doing a bunch of that stuff. Because I feel like, um, you know, I, I think we, we've passed the point where, um, you know, well, this is going to sound self you know, tooting, tooting our own horns here, but I think we've passed the point where, anybody who kind of looks around can escape the conclusion that, you know, cloud computing, which is inherently, I think, distributed computing, um, past a, past a certain point, um, is, is here to stay. Like, you know what I mean? Like you have, you know, if you're on AWS, for example, you have to be aware of things like, um, availability zones and the fact that machines are ephemeral and, you know, things like immutability and all those things are like these are becoming super important as primitives for building systems in the in, in the world going forward. Even if, even if right now it might be uh, more important for people like employees of Basho or Cognitech who have database products, I think that's it's going to be important for people to understand those things so that they can put together things like Zookeeper and React and Datomic and and whatever other uh, pieces they're using into a system that exhibits the, you know the right behaviors. Yeah, I was actually having a uh, a similar conversation uh, with someone about this. Um, I would even argue that even if you can sort of pawn off some of those problems on a database that's already written, um, it's becoming increasingly necessary for people to understand at least some of the basics of why distributed systems are difficult. So, you know, imagine for a moment that you just have a... Uh, a simple web app that has some uh, some JavaScript code on the client side and just has a single server. Um, so it turns out that that's actually a, a distributed system as well. So you know, as soon as you have two machines talking to each other, even if they're not in your data center, you just have a bunch of web browsers that are all connecting to you know your single Amazon or Linode instance. That's still a, a distributed system. So you know, if I change uh, the WebSocket protocol uh, that I'm using, like the JSON schema for my app, and all of my users have not updated to the latest you know, JavaScript code that I'm now pushing down when you fetch uh, uh, the website, I now have to deal with this consistency issue. I can't just make all my users upgrade to the new version at once. Or maybe I decide that's what I try and do. And, you know, start to realize that that's not as easy as you might think it is. Mm. Um, so a lot of the sort of uh, really basic lessons in distributed systems, I think, are still applicable to people who are, you know, perhaps thinking that they're not building a distributed system. Right. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> Food for thought. So I had another question I want to ask you. Um, you know, you're a person who gets to code in uh, Erlang uh, a lot and you play with Clojure and Haskell, although it, it sounds like you know you're more than just dabbling if you're uh, able to do some of the things we talked about. Um, so I have I've got this problem, which is that you know I've come to Closure, and Closure for me is um, a huge step forward from uh, the tools that I was using before. For me, that was C Sharp, um, and I have a lot more possibilities. And I and I kind of look at that and I go, well. I learned a lot coming here. It would be arrogance to assume that all of the good ideas reside in Clojure. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and I look around, and I think you've named two of the most obvious choices for, um, for other things I should look at. You know, Erlang and Haskell, right? It clearly have, like, super interesting ideas in them. Um, but at the same time, there's all these interesting things that people are doing in Clojure, and I'm like, ah. Oh, I'm always torn between, well, should I spend my time doing something completely different or should I drill down further and, and use something that's going to gain me 
like more leverage in the tool that I'm using. So I wonder if you would mind pitching me on learning uh, one or both of Erlang and Haskell, like sell it to me instead of, I should do this instead of going off and learning uh, simple check, for example. Okay, sure. Um, so I'll sort of start by saying, I mean, I don't think you can really lose either way. Mm. You know, there's, there's absolutely a ton of really cool things in the closure community that you could spend a lifetime learning. Um, so yeah, I don't think there's really a, uh, a wrong decision there. Um, but if I were to try and convince you to learn Erlang or Haskell and probably for different reasons, uh, for each of them, um, so I'm probably a little bit biased, uh, since Haskell was sort of my introduction to, uh, to functional programming. Um, but I think Haskell has made me a better functional programmer in any functional language I use. Um, it sort of forces you to think really in a disciplined way about what part of your code is going to have side effects and what part isn't in the sense that the, the type system is going to, you know, make it difficult to stick some IO at sort of the, you know, the inner bowels of your uh, code. It's certainly possible, but your type signatures are going to get really nasty. Your code's not going to be very composable. Um, you know, in the same way it is in Clojure, but it sort of forces you to think about it in a different way, I think. Hmm. Um, uh, if you're interested in, uh, you know, lazy streams um, or uh, sequences in Clojure, Haskell takes that to, like, the nth degree because the entire language is lazy. Right. Um, which I'll admit I'm sort of just now at the point with Haskell where I can, you know, sort of, uh, leverage whole program laziness as opposed to sort of just list laziness, uh, like you might do, uh, in closure. Um, and once that kind of snaps for you, you can do some really, really elegant things. Um, so I sort of think of, uh, of Haskell as, this elegance peak that I'm always trying to achieve in other languages. Um, you know, most of my time I'm not writing Haskell, but the things that I've learned from Haskell absolutely influence, you know, any other language, uh, uh that I'm using. Um, I personally think static typing is really cool. Uh, at least if you have an expressive type system. Um, so I like Haskell for that as well. Um, but I also like uh, dynamic typing a lot as well. Um, actually that uh, sort of brings up, uh, a little bit of a tangent. Um, but I'm super excited to see things like, uh, gradual typing mm. get more popularity. Um, so in Erlang, we have a tool, uh, called dialyzer, which is basically the corollary to core typed, uh, enclosure. Um, and I think that's a really, really cool place to be. It doesn't force you to sort of understand all of the uh, complicated things that type systems often come with in order to retain most of the expressiveness that you get in a dynamically typed language. You know, you can sort of opt into it as you learn more about how to express things with types. Um, but you also get the advantage of having a type system to help you find bugs at the time that you run the type checker, um, which oftentimes means that you find the bug where you initially violated the type specification as opposed to at runtime only when it started to matter. Um, uh, so I think that's really cool. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to see, uh, both, uh, the Erlang and the closure community start to, uh, start to embrace that more. Yeah. We just had a, I just recorded a podcast. I think it'll go out before this one with Ambrose about core type. So, uh, yeah, it's super, it, I agree. It's totally exciting to, and you know, I mean, what a great thing. So first of all, I will say that you have already sold me on uh, learning Haskell. I'm going to go back to that and pick that back <laughs> up. So we'll see if you can do the same for Erlang in a second. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's just exciting because, I, you know, it's just it's great to be in a place where I can go off and maybe, as you say, uh, pick up Haskell and go, OK, this is how you really pound these concepts into your brain in a deep and, in, you know, very um, uh, comprehensive way. And then to be able to walk back over and say, okay, now I can use the bits of that that I want to in the environment where I'm, you know, getting paid to work. So that's super cool. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, all right. So uh, I obviously like Erlang a lot. Um, that's what I do in my day job. And 
I think if, you know, given the chance to rewrite uh, React in another language, um, I would choose Erlang again in a heartbeat. Hmm. Um, Erlang is awesome for writing really fault-tolerant distributed systems. And it's not to say that someday there may not be, uh, you know, better choices out there, um, but I'm capable today of writing systems that I know are fault-tolerant and work in a distributed environment in Erlang. I understand what the pros and cons are. Um, it's exciting to see things like uh, Cloud Haskell start to get a little more popular, which is basically Erlang as a library, uh, but for Haskell. Um, and I'm imagining that, uh, that Clojure is probably going to start to dabble in that area eventually as a library as well. Won't be surprising. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I mean, the thing that I like about Erlang, it's a super, super simple language. Um, a really interesting decision they made, which I think is both a good thing and a bad thing, is that in Erlang, you actually cannot create your own new types. So you get the built-in types, and you can create you know, your own compound data structures based on those types. Um, but even as uh, something as simple as uh, a dictionary in Erlang is actually built just on the built-in data types. Um, and one of the really cool things you get from that is that everything is automatically serializable. So if I send a message from one process to another, I never have to write a serializer or a deserializer. You know, uh, no matter what I can construct with a few exceptions, um, things like references, uh, not references in the closure sense, but references to like a file handle or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, with those exceptions, anything I can construct, I can send over the network or to another process. Um, you know, it has the, uh, the con that you don't get to be expressive in the same way. Um, Erlang doesn't have any sort of type-based dispatch, uh, like protocols, uh, enclosure, or uh, type classes in Haskell. Um, but, you know, the pro that you get to that is anything you write, I can just serialize or send over the network right away with no hassle. And people actually use that in Erlang, um, and it works well. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a cool thing. Um, and with... Uh, links and monitors, which are basically the way that you can uh, construct uh, process lifetimes uh, together. So, you know, say I have uh, some work I need uh, to get done and it has some concurrent or parallel element to it. And if any of those individual parts fail, I want to stop the whole operation. Um, it's really easy to express things like that um, in Erlang. So I can either tie the lifetime of two processes together with a link, or I can get messages when another process dies with a monitor. And those work transparently uh, across the network as well, um, which ends up being a really, really nice primitive for building fault-tolerant applications. So the, okay, that, that makes sense. That all makes sense. I'm, I'm still reaching for the thing that Erlang would teach me though because they like you talked about Haskell you said okay that's going to teach you functional programming what's the is there a, like a lesson I even if I decide not to do Erlang on a day-to-day -day basis what's the thing I would that learning it would let me walk away with that I didn't have before yeah so I think it selling Erlang is a little bit difficult because a lot of the benefits that you get are things that kind of only matter after a while right so uh having a really impressive type system is a, you know, perhaps obvious thing of, uh, of why that's a benefit or being able to write code that's more elegant. Um, Erlang gives you things that matter a lot when it's, you know, 3 a.m. and your, uh, you know, system is starting to have problems. So um, you'll often hear people talk about Erlang as a mini operating system. So you can actually attach to a running node and restart services. There's all sorts of really cool introspection tools to see what's happening as the system is running. Um, I can trace uh, function execution over the network uh, with Erlang. Hmm. So it gives you these really powerful tools for diagnosing problems of a running system without ever having to take it down. So like one of the really cool things uh, about supporting an Erlang system, when we get 
you know, a ticket, even if it's a, uh, a serious issue, oftentimes we can resolve that issue without ever having to restart the running, uh, uh, to restart the Erlang virtual machine, which is sort of foreign to, you know, people who are used to, uh, to other runtimes where, you know, changing code at runtime or adding a new trace or something requires you to either recompile the application or at the very least to, you know, restart the virtual machine with some new config file or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little hard to promote the benefits of that if you're not already sold on those kind of day-to-day things mattering. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, that's but, okay. I don't think the benefit has to fit into a tweet to exist, right? And I think that's a yeah. That's kind of a danger of, of our modern lifestyle is that we fall into that trap sometimes. But uh, that's good. It's food for thought. Um, cool. Well, listen... I, I feel like there's a bunch more stuff we could talk about, but uh, I don't. I also know it's you know you've already taken up an hour of your time and uh, or nearly, and uh, I don't want to keep you too much longer. But um, before we go, is there anything else you want to talk about before we? I want to cut you off if you've got something interesting in your pocket or something you want people to know about. Um, yeah, let me think for a second. Sure. Um, yeah, so we've talked about gradual typing, which mm-hmm. I'm super excited about. Uh, Core async, uh, I think, is really neat. Um, I'm sort of a sucker for, you know, different concurrency models and stuff. Um, that, was one of, uh, that was one of the things that originally attracted me uh, to Clojure. Um, I'd played with, uh, uh, with the Haskell STM before and sort of knew it was a, a cool and useful thing. Um, that's certainly something uh, I'm sort of on the fence about Erlang. Um, so... Erlang takes the uh, the concurrency approach of having actors be your only concurrency model. So even if you're writing a system that only runs on a single machine, you're still using the actor model for your concurrency, um, which I'll have to admit I'm a little on the fence about. I, I actually like things like having an STM uh, or atoms that you can do uh, compare and swap on. So... Um, in Erlang, I'm oftentimes on a local node wanting some safe shared mutable state um, or at least something, you know, like an atom that allows me to uh, have a place in space that I can mutate, even if the actual data structures I'm swapping in there um, are immutable. Uh, so that's, you know, one of the, uh, at least in my mind, uh, cons of Erlang. Um Someone who, you know, might sort of advocate for that might reply that, well, that allows you to write code that initially runs on a single machine and then barely have to change any of your code at all to now have that same code, have those processes spread across multiple boxes, mm-hmm. um, which is it's certainly an interesting argument and probably in some cases uh, is a benefit. Um, but I'm not totally convinced that from a design point of view, I'm often confused about whether I want something to be local or uh, uh, local or uh, remote. You know, I think I often think about those things up front when I'm designing a system and I have a very different design for how I am going to design something that's going to run locally versus distributed. And I don't think there's a ton of overlap when, uh, of use cases where I kind of change my mind later and decide, okay, you know, now I want to sort of spread these things out. Yeah. Um, but you know, that being said, um, having distribution built in from the beginning, it is so easy to write code that communicates on multiple boxes in Erlang. You know, there's almost no boilerplate to it at all. And even if you've never done any distributed programming at all, the barrier to entry is really low, which is a super cool thing. And um, it's really, really fun, you know, just doing like the hello world of distributed systems in Erlang where, you know, you, you know, launch two terminals and uh, get those nodes uh, communicating with each other and start sending messages back and forth. It's just, it's a really fun thing to do and sort of, uh, at least for me, you know, sort of convinced me like, oh, okay, like, 
I don't have to start with a bunch of boilerplate of socket handling and stuff to write distributed systems. I can start at a higher level, um, which I think uh, lowers the barrier to entry a lot, which is, is super cool. And as you mentioned, is becoming uh, increasingly important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, there's definitely something to be said for the language, a language having uh, a kind of path of least resistance. I mean, we see that with immutable, I see that with immutable types in Clojure where, sure, you can have mutation, but it's not the most handy thing. And so you reach for the handy thing and what do you know that it leads to good properties and it sounds like the same is true for Erlang for those types of problems. That's, that's super cool. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other sort of out from left field thing I'll mention, which we probably don't have time to talk about, but okay. uh, you know, could be an interesting thing for people to go read about uh, is a, a class of data structures uh, called uh, succinct data structures. Um, this is, you know, totally separate from uh, distributed systems or anything, but just something cool I've been reading about recently. Um, the basic, you know, 30-second th uh, pitch is that, uh, you know, you think about compression as trying to store data in close to the information theoretic, you know, lower bound uh, for that data. Um, but when you compress data, for the most part, if you want to use it again, you have to decompress it. You can't operate on that compressed state. So if you have some tree, if you compress that tree and serialize it, you can't traverse the tree anymore. Um, so succinct data structures uh, are sort of the subset of data structures that can be stored in a close to information theoretic bound while still supporting some operations on them. So you can store trees in much smaller space than you can with uh, having a bunch of 64-bit pointers uh, while still being able to traverse the trees and stuff. Gotcha. Um, so that's something I've been kind of playing around with. There's a bunch of cool papers and blog posts. I'll, uh, I'll send you some links we can put on the show notes. That'd be great. Um, but yeah, that's just, it's a fun new data structure thing. And I know the, uh, the closure community is, is always looking at new data structures and stuff, which is, is super cool. So well, sir, I believe with that, you may have won the prize for podcast guest who in a single episode has given me the largest number of things that I absolutely have to go check out. <laughs> I'm so, happy to hear that. Yeah, you've you've given me weeks worth of work. My 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 wife might be writing you a nasty letter um, <laughs> for my evenings and and weekends. But no, it was really cool to have you on the show. I'm so glad that uh, that uh, you know some people went to your talk and said, hey, you know, you should talk to this guy because I I really appreciate your perspective. I think uh, any number of the things that you mentioned are are worth checking out. I just I wish there were more hours in the day, but I'm definitely going to take some hours and check out uh, as many of those things as I can. So thanks a ton for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, absolutely. And I think uh, we'll have to have you back because obviously um, we are not having any trouble finding interesting things for you to talk <laughs> about. So uh, maybe you'll come back and talk to us again sometime. Yeah, it'd be my pleasure. Okay, great. Well, um, before we go then, uh, let you go, uh, I want to make sure that we ask you for a song that we will play on the way out. What would you like us to play? Uh, let's play Hold Up uh, by Joe Goddard. Okay, great. I don't know that one either. Is that is there a genre on that that I would... Uh, it's a sort of electronic music pop kind of tune. Cool. Well, I, I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but I do um, every song that any guests pick... I put in my music library, and I almost always listen to my library on shuffle, which I'm sure would drive some people insane since it'll flip <laughs> between like Meshuggah and Vivaldi now. But uh, yeah, um, but no. So you've got that in my rotation, so I, which is cool. I, and I always, it, it's always nice to hear something uh, a little different. And I don't have very much uh, of that sort of thing. So thank, thanks both for um, sharing that with our listeners, but also in uh, ensuring that I will listen to that dozens of times over the coming months. So. It's cool. Absolutely. All right. Well, th thanks again, Reed. It was super great to have you on the show. I'm looking forward to catching up with you. So I, I wonder, Will, so I saw you at Strange Loop. Will I see you uh, maybe at the Conj? Uh, not sure yet. Okay. Yeah. All right, cool. Maybe we'll see you there. And if not, it sounds like uh, Closure West is one that you make it out to from time to time. So hopefully catch you there. Yeah, I think I'll definitely be there. Great. Okay. Well, uh, I'll thank you again. And I will also uh, thank our listeners. This has been the Cognicast.
You have been listening to The Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc., whom you can find on the web at cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. Our guest today was Reed Draper on Twitter at Reed Draper, R-E-I-D-D-R-A-P-E-R. The Cognicast is produced with help from Alex Miller, Alex Ward, Damian Mack, Jamie Kite, Justin Getlin, Kelly Ross, Luke Vanderhart, Lynn Grogan, Mark Phillips, Russ Olson, Sam Umbuck, and Stuart Sierra. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening.